been a first-timer in a situation where everyone knows what's going on except you, because it's the first time you've done it, okay? I mean, I'm sure we've all been in that situation. So you're the first day of school, if you remember back that far, or the first day of university or TAFE or any college. Um, the first time you walk into a new job, a new company, everyone else knows what's going on, you don't. I think we've all been there. But how many of us have ventured into what I think is potentially the scariest situation or experience for someone who'd never been, for a first-timer. What do you think is the scariest situation to walk into? You might have something in mind, but I'd like to suggest that that would be the scariest thing would be for the first time going to a Korean pop concert, a K-pop concert. In fact, if you Google how to survive a K-pop concert for a first-timer, you will find web page after web page. So I went to one of them, and I found a top 25 tips to survive your first K-pop concert. Incidentally, who's been to a K-pop concert? Come on, Wendy, I know you have. <laughs> and you survived. Did any of your friends not survive? You don't have to tell us. But, okay, so let me give you some of the top 25 tips. So, fan chants. I didn't know what fan chants were, but you're supposed to learn these chants that everyone else is supposed to know, and they all go off at the same time at some point in the concert. You don't want to be the person who's looking around saying, what's going on? So learn them. Next one, sleeping pills. No, not for during the concert, but because you'll be so excited the night before, you won't be able to sleep. But you need to sleep because it's a high-energy concert. So take sleeping pills so you can have a good night's sleep. Cough drops. Self-explanatory for all the screaming that you will do. Phone charger. Don't forget this because you don't want to run out of power for the billions of selfies you want to take during the concert and the live streaming. How about this? Deodorant. Yep. It's a sweaty and smelly affair. And don't forget when it comes to merch or merchandise, don't wear merchandise from other K-pop groups. It's just not on. Uh, light sticks, right? don't forget to bring your light sticks because everyone else will have them. And number 23, pee. Pee it all out before you get in line because apparently it's a five to six hour wait even before you get in the stadium. Crazy, isn't it? This is helpful if I ever make it to a K-pop concert, which is unlikely. Well, what's it like for a first timer walking into a church service? Now, some of you have been to church all your life, and so you don't remember that. But some here will remember this very well, firsthand. It is a little strange, isn't it? Especially if you had no church experience. The, the singing, the praying, the standing, and then the sitting sometimes, and then the, the praying together, and then the things that we say together, and then the listening to some guy talk for 30, 40 minutes. That's weird, isn't it? Now, at our church, we try to explain things as much as we can, but even then, it does seem strange. Well, imagine this. Imagine walking into a church service where the gatherings were really, really messy, really disorderly. There's, there's nothing that's explained. Everyone seems to be there for their own experience. Everyone is vying for a chance to display their gifts. They're talking over each other all at the same time, um, with a bunch of strange things going on at random times. Again, not explained. And then sometimes people would just start speaking and praying aloud in what sounds to be gibberish. 
Imagine walking into a church service like that, because that was something like the church in the ancient city of Corinth. So what's God's message to this messy church that we've been looking at? Or to any church that wants to seek greater spiritual gifts and greater spiritual experiences, because that's what was driving them to have services, gatherings like that. Well, remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and now we're in 14. And as I said last week, it's like a sandwich, like a really tasty sausage sandwich that you're all going to have at lunchtime today. I'm so hungry now. Um, the bread on either side is chapters 12 to 14. And it's on spiritual gifts, but the most important part is, of course, the sausage in the middle. By the way, you'll only get one piece of bread today, just saying. Um, And the center is chapter 13 we looked at last week, which is love. And the big message from last week, all these spiritual gifts, all these spiritual experiences are nothing, absolutely nothing without love. Now, this chapter, chapter 14, which is a long one, is going to apply that principle of love into a church that was so eager for spiritual gifts and experiences. So what does it actually look like? Well, the answer is, if you follow your outlines, three simple letters, I-O-S. No, it has nothing to do with Apple devices. I-O-S. S stands for the spirit or spiritual gifts. So when it comes to using spiritual gifts, keep in mind the I and the O. The I and the O. I stands for intelligible, which means everyone can understand. O stands for orderliness. All right, and you can see that's my points two and three on your outline. Now today, my plan is actually a shorter sermon, shorter than usual, because we're going to move into a time of Q&A. So if you have any questions, jot it down, or any questions from your CGs, jot it down, because I'd like to spend a little bit of time answering as many of those as possible, but we'll try and keep the sermon shorter. Let me pray, and then we'll get into the passage fairly quickly. Father, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to this passage, some of which is tricky. Help me to speak your word to your people today, that we at SWEC might grow in our use of the gifts and our love for each other. Amen. So firstly, first point, what is meant by the two key gifts mentioned here? Tongues and prophecy. Now, the gift of tongues. The word tongues is the word language in the, in the original. So gift of tongues or gift of languages. Uh, we need to actually go back right to the beginning of the gift in Acts chapter 2, when God pours out His Holy Spirit on His church for the first time. Have a look at the um, passage with me on the screens. When the day of Pentecost came, they, that is Jesus' early followers, the disciples, 12 plus a few, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages or other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, how do we define the gift of tongues? Tongues is a God-given supernatural ability to speak in a language or languages not previously known or learnt by the speaker. You got that? So, the bit we read in Acts, uh, you read on later, it's very clear that they were known languages at the time because people in the crowd started understanding uh, what they were saying, even though they were speaking all these different languages and people from all over the world were understanding their own home language. So, in Acts, known languages at the time. Now, in 1 Corinthians, here and in other chapters, I think it includes that, known languages at the time, but I think probably not limited to that. 
not limited to only known languages at the time. Because of the particular function it had in Acts, it was known languages. But here, it may be wider than that, probably wider than that. But even if it's not a known language in existence, in a sense, the gift of tongues has to have meaning in some sense. All right? It can't just be gibberish. Or for someone just to say, oh, that's not the gift of tongues because there's no meaning to that, okay? Because if it has no meaning, then it can't be interpreted. And that's a really key idea in this. So even if it's not a known language, in some sense it has to have some meaning, some linguistic meaning. So that's what tongues is. But what else can we say about tongues? Well, in the New Testament, including the book of Acts, you'll find out that the gift of tongues is primarily for prayer and praise, right? For prayer and praise. It's primarily directed to God. So uh, keep your Bibles open in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. Look what it says there. We didn't read it earlier, but he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And then verse 16, he says, When you are praising God in the spirit, when he's talking about the gift of tongues. So those with this gift describe it as being able to pray or praise directly with their spirit, their own spirits. It's, it bypasses the mind and understanding. It's sort of like talking to God heart to heart is how they would describe it. Or in the Ronan Keating sort of way, for those who remember the song, you say it best when you say nothing at all. Okay, so it's a, it's a direct prayer from your spirit to God bypassing the mind. Now, as I say this, some of you will be like, okay, this is weird. I've never even heard of this gift. I've never seen it in operation. But some of you will have seen it and witnessed it. And maybe some of you will have had negative experiences. You've gone to churches and it's just been so in your face and so weirded out. And, and you think, nah, it's got to be all bogus. Well, I think the key is, We've got to always be careful. Let's not let a reaction to an error, because I'll argue in a moment that I think some churches do do this wrong when it comes to the gift of tongues. But don't let your reaction to an error create more error. You know what I mean? We've actually got to deal with what the Bible actually says. And the Bible speaks about a gift, a genuine gift of tongues. Not all tongues that you might see out there is genuine. Some of it may be bogus, but it doesn't mean that there's no genuine gift of tongues. So let's look at the Bible. Okay, so that's tongues. Let me move on to the next one, which is the gift of prophecy. And here's a, a simple definition. Um, now, usually we think of prophecy as telling the future. It's predictive prophecy. I want to tell you, before we look at the definition, that biblical prophecy is primarily not future-orientated, predictive. It, it is, partly, but if you think about the Old Testament, which has got so many prophets and prophetic books, right? It's actually mostly not about the future, but mostly about the past and the present. A lot of these prophets just spoke judgment in the present because of what they had been doing in the past. You see, that is still prophecy. So here's a helpful way of remembering prophecy. It's not so much foretelling. Foretelling is predicting the future as it is forthtelling. Forthtelling is telling you, for, telling forth. And what's it telling? Telling forth the word of God or a revelation from God. So central to prophecy, God reveals something to you and you speak it to others. It's forthtelling, right? Forthtelling. Now, there are different levels of God's revelation. 
You've got to know that. In the Bible, there are different levels of that. The highest level is God revealing truth to special people, special prophets, especially in the Old Testament. And it's unquestionable. Right? There's absolute certainty when God speaks through people like Moses and Samuel and Elijah and, Eli- and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You know, you think of those big prophetic names. Right? They were speaking God's word in a way that others didn't. And that's why their words basically became Scripture, the Bible. That's the highest level revelation, unquestionable, special prophets in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, this highest level revelation doesn't come to New Testament prophets. That's something interesting you find when you uh, read about prophets in the New Testament. It doesn't primarily come to prophets, that highest level, but it comes to apostles, Right, Jesus' 12 disciples plus Paul, right, who were specially commissioned as first-generation eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, as well as those alongside the apostles who wrote our New Testament. That's where the highest level of revelation is in the New Testament. And so you could say that the, um, the, the successors or the heirs to Old Testament prophets in the New Testament are not New Testament prophets, like what we're looking at today. The heir to the Old Testament prophets are apostles, right? the apostles of Jesus. Now, in both cases, the highest level of revelation, the unquestionable, 100%, no doubt, pure word of God, where do you find that? Well, you're not going to find it in the mouths of New Testament prophets. I don't care how prophetic they are. You're going to find it in Scripture, in the Bible, Old and New Testament. All right. So what is New Testament prophecy then? New Testament prophecy is a lower level revelation. And it sits under Scripture. It's subject to the Bible. And that's why it must be evaluated. It must be tested. Verse 29, Paul says, look at verse 29. He says, if a prophetic word comes, everyone is to weigh carefully what is said. You need to judge it by the standard of the Bible. As you do my teaching and preaching. Everything the church does now has got to be tested by the Scriptures. So here's the definition. Finally, we come to it on the screen. The best definition is, a prophecy Prophecy is a God-given word or insight that's spoken to the needs of persons, communities, or situations to build them up. All right, so God gives a word or insight, and it's given to or for the sake of people, communities, or situations to build them up. So you see that in uh, verse 3. So have a look at chapter 14, verse 3. Paul says, The one who prophesies, what's he doing? Speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Now there's a lot of people who think that prophecy here in the Bible, in the New Testament, is basically what we do when I preach or teach. Right? Prophecy is now preaching and teaching. I understand where that's coming from because preaching and teaching is also for encouragement and comfort and strengthening. But I don't think it's the same thing. And if I, wanted to, if I had to distinguish it, this is how I would distinguish it. Teaching and preaching is primarily what I do here is explaining the Bible. Right? Explaining the Bible, the highest level revelation here. And helping you to learn and apply the Bible to your life. That's teaching and preaching essentially. That's what your CG leaders might be doing. That's what the people who meet up with you one-on-one might be doing. You're opening the Bible, explaining it to apply it to your life. Now, prophecy is more responsive to the needs and situations. You see the definition? Prophecy is more tailored to the moment of what God might want to say to you at that moment for that particular situation. Do you see the difference? Yeah? 
Now, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to take these two central ideas. Sorry, we're going to take tongues and prophecy, and I want to bring you back to the two central ideas. Remember, get these two, and the whole chapter makes sense, because we don't have time to look at the whole chapter. But the I and the O, right? So intelligible and orderly. So let's go. Firstly, intelligible. Again, I want you to imagine walking into a church service in Corinth. In their gathering, a bunch of people with the gift of tongues would just start speaking aloud over each other, on top of each other, all at once, praying and praising God in what sounds to be gibberish like others. You walk into that situation, imagine that. Now, these tongue speakers themselves think it's a wonderful experience because it strengthens their faith. It helps them pray. It helps them praise God. They may have even thought that it'll help unbelievers come to faith because they're witnessing something so spectacular and supernatural. That's what the tongue speakers might have been thinking. But what if you walked in and you're not a tongue speaker? How would you be feeling? Well, you can imagine you'd be feeling pretty on the outside, wouldn't you? Pretty excluded. If you were not a believer, an unbeliever, how else might you have been feeling? You'd probably walk into the situation And let's be honest, you're probably pretty weirded out thinking have these guys completely lost their mind. Yeah? Now, some of you have been to churches as an outsider without the gift of tongues and experienced just that. So you'll know what I'm talking about. That's what's going on in the Corinthian church. And so what is Paul's message to them? Paul, who writes to the Corinthian church, God is using Paul, an apostle, to write this to the Corinthian church. What does he want? He basically says to Corinthians, you guys need to grow up. Because when it comes to the gathering, the worship service, the key is intelligibility or understandability. So let's read the first few verses again. You'll see that very clearly. Verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I'd rather every one of you speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Okay, remember chapter 14 follows last chapter 13, which is all about love. And love seeks the good of others. Remember that last week. Love is seeking to build or edify others, build others up. And you can't build others up if they can't understand what you say. Right? That's, that's the big key he's making. Maybe in terms of flashy spiritual experiences, tongues might be more impressive than prophecy or teaching or preaching. But in terms of love, well, you see what he's saying. In terms of love, prophecy... And by implication, teaching and preaching and anything else that's intelligible is greater because people can understand you. And so his conclusion will be, you should only exercise the gift of tongues in the gathering if it can be made intelligible. That is, if you or someone else can interpret. That's pretty simple. That's pretty straightforward. I think you all get it, right? So we don't have time for the rest of the chapter in detail, but let me just give you a quick outline if you're you're reading yourself or want to know how it fits in. In the next few verses, verses 6 to 12, Paul will illustrate that. And we read that before. He'll illustrate it with the sounds of instruments and so on and the, the trumpet. 
And then in verses 13 to 19, he's going to apply it further. And where he concludes, look at verse 18 and 19. It's a pretty strong conclusion. At the end of the matter, this is what he wants to say. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But verse 19, but in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's his conclusion. Now, verses 20 to 25, again, no time to look at it in detail. Feel free to ask about it. Paul quotes a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 28. And the point he's trying to make, to cut a long story short, is that tongues actually will alienate unbelievers rather than bring them closer to God. Remember, some people might have thought, tongues is great because the unbeliever will come in and they'll think, wow, this is so cool. What a spiritual experience. I want in. Actually, he says, no, because of the unintelligibility of it, it's going to alienate them. It's going to push them away from God. Whereas prophecy might actually do the opposite and bring them closer to God. Okay, so that's 20 to 25. So that's the first section on tongues. Let me go on to my next point, which is on not intelligible, but order. So verses 26 to the end of the chapter is this other key point. You want to exercise love in the gathering, it's got to be orderly. Now again, let me take you back and imagine what it might have been like in the Corinthian worship service. Not only were the tongue speakers disorderly and speaking out of turn or all at once, likely those with the gift of prophecy also. So some with the gift of prophecy were eager to exercise their gifts. And so they would stand up and speak and go on and on and on and don't let others get a word in. Some have so much confidence in their own prophetic gifts that they think what they say is beyond question, like it was the highest level revelation. And so they'll say it and they don't expect to be evaluated or tested. Okay, this might have been what was going on in the early church as well. And to them, Paul applies love and says, remember the O, love is orderly. So I'm going to skip down to verse 26 and read a bit there. So come with me to verse 26. Well, then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Same principle, edification, yeah? If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time. And here it is, someone must interpret, right? Remember, someone must interpret, intelligibility. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what's said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Right? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Orderliness is important. Again, because of the principle of love. Now, tricky section, verses 20, 34 to 35. He's going to talk about women in the assembly. It is tricky. I'm not going to have time to deal with it in detail. But let me just be really quick and say the background is that there were women in the service who in their own way, in some way that we're not completely clear about, but in their own way were also being disorderly. And probably it was in, the, in relation to the weighing up of prophecy. When it came to the time when some prophet would speak and then they would weigh it up and evaluate it, uh, the women in that congregation took the opportunity to openly question and speak up in a way that in that culture, 
somehow dishonored their husbands. Oh, that's, I think that was what's going on. And that explains the, what he's saying in verses 34 to 35. Let me tell you what he's not saying. Paul is not saying women can't speak or pray or prophesy aloud in the assembly. That's not what he's saying. Because only three chapters earlier, in chapter 11, verse 5, right? we won't look it up, he will say women will pray and women will prophesy. Obviously, in three chapters, he kind of changed his mind. But the context is, again, I think, in terms of weighing up of prophecy. Somehow, they were doing it in a disorderly and dishonoring way in the early church when it came to the time of weighing up prophecy. I'll leave it at that. If you want to ask more, ask me later. Okay, last point, conclusion. Conclusion of the whole chapter is, look at verses 39 and 40. Skip down to the end, verse 39 and 40. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's the conclusion, right? Chapters 12, 13, 14, same message. We've been looking at it in three chapters. When it comes to spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences, love trumps everything. Love always thinks, what's going on to build, what's going to build others up? What's going to strengthen the body of Christ, the church? How can I put, essentially, what I put on the outline, how can I put we before me? That's what love is. It's we before me. Now, in this chapter, on three occasions, we before me applies itself in choosing to be silent. Right? When it comes to your spiritual gift, we before me actually sometimes means you don't exercise that gift at that time. Right? You choose to remain silent. See, in verse 28, it's there. If there's no interpretation of tongues, the tongue speaker should keep silent or keep quiet. Then the same word is used in verse 30. If someone else has a prophetic word, the current speaker can let them speak and keep quiet. Now, I mentioned this keep quiet word because in verse 34, it's the same word, right? It's not the, it, he's not saying women should always be silent. It's not what he's saying. That would be terribly chauvinistic and horribly uh, misogynistic. But he's saying women in that context who have something itching to say during the weighing of prophecy, but so doing might be acting disorderly or dishonoring to their husbands, well, they can choose to keep quiet and instead ask their husbands at home. Same word used three times. But the same idea is we before me. All right, and it comes to all spiritual gifts. Think again. You might have a gift. You might be better than others. But how do you think we before me? And how is we before me sometimes deciding not to use that, not to speak up? So I'm going to try and apply this quickly to us before question time. How do we apply all this? Well, firstly, I think we do well with tongues, the gift of tongues. There are those here with the gift of tongues. I know that. And it is a wonderful gift, as all spiritual gifts are. It's not everyone who has the gift in tongues. But for those with this gift, it can really enrich their prayer life and their praise life. But because we obey the Bible and what it says here in 1 Corinthians, we at our church don't allow tongues in the gathering, whether it's here in the assembly, the big assembly, or even in the small group. We don't allow it unless it's interpreted. And that's the key, unless it's interpreted. And I don't think we've ever had a problem with that. We haven't ever had anyone ask uh, or want to speak in tongues uninterpreted in the assembly. So I think we do okay with tongues. So I'm just going to leave it at that again. Feel free to ask more if you want. But 
Here it is. Here's the but. I think we could do, as a church, I think we could do better with prophecy. I think we could do better with prophecy. See, 1 Corinthians 14 paints a picture of New Testament prophecy that I think we should eagerly desire. Remember, prophecy is that lower level revelation that sits under the scripture, but it really builds others up. It's desirable. It helps the body grow. Now, here it is. I think prophecy happens in our church more than we realize. And I don't think we ever call it prophecy, but I think it happens more than we realize. Likely, you may have the gift of prophecy or have used it before, and you're not even aware that you had it. I'll give you some examples. Have you ever been on the receiving end of some word of encouragement that someone's given you, maybe by text or in person, someone sharing a scripture passage, some advice or offer of prayer to you, and as they've prayed, they've just somehow said something that was just right, and, and, and you've been on the receiving end, and it was exactly what you needed at the right time. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that? I think a lot of us have. And you know at the end of that, yeah, it was Anthony speaking to me, but I really feel like God was speaking through Anthony to me, because how could Anthony know that I needed that? Yeah? Have you been on the receiving end of that? Or have you ever felt led by God to be on the giving end of that? To give that word of encouragement, to share scripture, give wisdom, offer prayer. And it's again been exactly the right thing at the right time. And you're not even sure why you felt prompted or led to share that, that particular scripture with that person. But then they tell you afterwards, whoa, how did you know? See, I think that's pretty close to the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. We just never call it that. And I would love for us to have more of that happen. See, some of you have this gift and you know you have this gift, even if you've never called it prophecy. Some of you have this gift, but you don't know you have it. And 1 Corinthians 14 tells us how impactful and helpful it can be. And so it's a good thing. If you're sitting here thinking, I don't know if I have this gift. Well, Paul says, eagerly desire greater gifts for the sake of others. This is a gift that we could really use lots at this church. So if you desire it, great. And if you have it, it's a great thing to want to excel at it and exercise it in a loving and orderly way. So how do we do it? How do we encourage this gift? How if you don't have the gift and you want it, or how if you think you have the gift, how can you get better at it? Well, that is a bigger topic for another time. But let me give you four suggestions. Pray, Bible, test, and speak. Firstly, pray. It all starts with prayer. Prayer. Pray that God will give you, not so much, God give me the gift, but what underlies the gift is more important. God, give me a heart for people. Now, give me a heart for people. And show me how I can help them by speaking something into their lives in a helpful way. Pray. All right, pray. Secondly, Bible. Immerse yourself in God's Word. Right? God's pure, unquestionable Word, the Bible. See, often the best word you can give someone is God's written word, the Bible, at the right time. You don't even have to quote it, by the way, right? It's just something that you know comes from the Bible. The heart of it is from the Bible. And it's even better if you want to immerse yourself in the Bible to memorize the Bible. Some of the times the best people giving those biblical words are people who've memorized it, and so it just kind of flows out of their mouth. Immerse yourself in the Bible. Number three, test. If you think you may have something from God to say to someone, especially if it's a bit weighty or 
directive involves some sort of advice, then talk to one of your pastors to test it out first. Talk to me, talk to Marshall, talk to Dom, talk to... Just say, hey, I, I'm thinking this might be helpful for someone or God's put it on my heart. I just want to test it. We can help you test it by Scripture. It's always a good thing. Test it before you speak it. And then finally, speak. Use your gift. Okay, you won't always get it right. But you know what? As a preacher or as song leaders, for those who song lead, we don't get it right all the time either. Right? Sometimes you just got to practice and try it. Now, when you do speak it, how you say it is just important as what you say. So please don't preface anything with, thus says the Lord. Okay? Because you are not Moses. And you want to encourage your listeners to also test it. Don't you? All right? So there are other ways of prefacing it, but don't say, thus says the Lord. Now, there's way more we can talk about when it comes to the gift of prophecy, but we'll leave it at this. What I'm going to ask you to do is uh, collect some of the questions you might have, and we're going to, in about a minute's time, start Q&A before we sing again. 